Good morning. Depending on how fit I am, I'll be having the pleasure of your company either in person, which is the best, or via the screens, which is a tribute to the hard work of the team as we're in that time of progress when we can do it. I have to tell you something. I've asked our tech whiz kids to have the camera on if I'm on the screen so I can see from home if anyone nods off or is playing a game on their phone. The penalty for being caught is having to listen to two of my messages in a row, or where there's mitigating circumstances, three of my messages in a row. Anyone showing excellent attention will be rewarded with a signed photo of the elders as first prize, and second prize, two photos of the elders. Seriously, I really would like to thank you all for praying for me. It's true that Barbara and I have felt the benefit, the benefit of your love and care, we're not quite there yet, but I believe that God's at work, so praise the Lord. Now this is a series that we've been doing on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, of course, are a little bit of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to look at the wider Sermon on the Mount, just as I wrap this up. But I'd like to read the Beatitudes before we do anything else. You'll find them in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. There is a debate about whether or not there's eight or nine Beatitudes. Well, I've taken it that there's eight, and the other part uh, that goes on about being blessed when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things evil against you are all part of that number eight. So, we're going to go from there. Now, I did the very first one some weeks ago and I just really did an introduction. Sue spoke on those who mourn and spoke very well. Dan spoke on gentleness. It's ra rather ironic that Dan, who's the biggest of us all, should speak on gentleness, but he did a great job. Peter Tidy spoke on hungering and thirsting after God. Pete Bernardo on mercy. Andy on purity. Phil on being a peacemaker. Deb on persecution, and I'm summing it all up following all these great speakers. We're very blessed by having really good speakers in the church. Now, if you're someone who's interested in science fiction, the name Isaac Asimov won't be a surprise to you. Isaac Asimov wrote a trilogy of 13 books, so it's the world's largest trilogy, and it's on something called the Foundation Series. There's a galactic empire that uh, was formed 50,000 years in the future. So no one quite knows where Earth is. There's rumours that go around that Earth was the place where everyone came from, but no one really knows. But this empire, this galactic empire, works very successfully. But occasionally, when it's threatened or goes off beam to corruption or war, a second mysterious foundation influences it and gets it on track. 
Of course, most people in this day and age don't believe in a secret second foundation. But it seems to get things on track. That's the, 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 the basis of the story. Now in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, Jesus talks about us being like that secret foundation. If you've got your Bibles, please turn with me. Take me a moment to find mine. Acts chapter 5. And this is what it says. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's of no longer any good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus talks about us being like the, that secret foundation, dispensing salt and light. We change the flavour and illuminate the world around us. But it's no secret influence. The flavour of Christ is to be felt and the light of Christ is to be seen. So much so that it causes persecution. His message causes men to lie about you and to attack you because of Christ's name. In verse 12 of Matthew 5, that's what it says, 11 and 12, we're to rejoice and be glad because we're spoken evil of. So it's no secret influence. We're to let the flavour of Christ to be felt, the light of Christ to be seen. Why do men persecute us? Because men want to control their own destiny and resent any interference. We're self-made men who worship their Creator. Verse 17 says something very interesting. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfil. We are not to think that the law is just redundant and therefore can be cast aside. Had Israel followed this law then the world would have been a different place. It would have shown an example of what can happen when God's kingdom was lived out. But rules and laws can never deal with sin. There would still have been a need for Christ to come and die as sin can only be dealt with by blood. The law is the straight line that shows how crooked we are. It shows the righteousness that's necessary for us to stand before God and be forgiven. In verse 20, Jesus said, I say unto you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees believed that they could keep the law and therefore be righteous. But Jesus comes and says it's not nearly enough. That's why he gave us his righteousness manifested in the cross. He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. There's an old chorus that glorifies Jesus that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What grace it is that he does this for us. Now, I want to mention some of the other things that go on around these chapters. 
The rest of chapter 5 to the end of chapter 7 deals with the following subjects. Verse 21, it talks about anger. It just says, You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So it deals with anger. Verse 27, it deals with sexual morality. Verse 33, the power of words. Verse 38, revenge. Unforgiveness. In chapter 6, it deals with prayer. Fasting. Our attitude towards wealth. Our attitude towards worry. Judging. And then there's the golden rule in 7 chapter 12. It says very simply what we call the golden rule. In everything... Treat people the same way you want to be treated by them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then it goes on to talk about the way of salvation and ends up, as it begins, with the true foundations. So I would exhort you to take it all to heart. This is no simple word, but a gushing forth of the heart of God to a rebellious people, as we all are. These are the rules of the kingdom. It speaks of a kingdom that rules every other kingdom, regardless of perceived power and majesty. Jesus rules and reigns, even when the devil thinks he does. There have been many kingdoms, but they all fall given time. Only one remains, the kingdom of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now before you can teach on the Sermon on the Mount, certain things had to happen, and I'd like to go over those things. So if you go back to chapter 3 of Matthew, the first thing is found in verses 1 to 3. It says this, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist came, burst onto the scene, announcing that the kingdom was on hand and their responsibility was to repent. He was dressed in a camel's loincloth with a grasshopper leg sticking out of his beard. Why did they have to repent? Because the Jews had missed what was there in the Old Testament for them. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote something in Romans 9 that's very touching. It's about his attitude towards his Jewish um, partners, shall we say. If I can find it for you. He says this. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, 
according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. What privileged people, what blessing was theirs, but they missed it. John was not the Messiah, but the one prophesied about as making the way clear for the Messiah to come. And he refers to the Holy Spirit as the one who will baptise us with fire. In verse chapter 3 now, back in Matthew, in verse 11. The Spirit brings the kingdom. Some people got confused. In Acts chapter 19, when Paul arrives at Ephesus, he finds a group of people who are believing on John the Baptist, but not on Christ. So there was a place to put these things right. So the first thing we say is that John the Baptist came. The second thing was that Jesus was baptised. In chapter 3 and verse 15, it says that Jesus arrived from Galilee in the Jordan and to be baptised by John. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptised by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he permitted him, and after being baptised, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus didn't need to be baptised, but he showed us the importance of doing the right thing. Again, the Holy Spirit came as the evidence of the kingdom, and the Father spoke. What a thing to say. The Father came and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. If Jesus was baptised, what about us? The third thing that happened is the temptations. Jesus had to experience the temptations. He had to go through those things so that he was able to say he was the Son of Man who experienced everything that we do. And the way to deal with these temptations, well, quote and live by the word of God. In chapter 4 of 4, he quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. God's testing Israel, but the word used for the word is rima, not logos. So when I read, first read this passage, I thought, well, Jesus is saying every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is the great revelation, the great logos. But it's not. It's the individual word, the specific word to our hearts. That's what we need and we live by it. I come alive when God speaks. We should expect God to speak and we should expect to hear it. How? By the Holy Spirit again, bringing the kingdom. The fourth thing was Jesus started his public ministry. In, John, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it talks about Jesus from that time began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the same thing that John the Baptist was preaching. But his cry soon changed to become, Follow me. It became personal because he embodies the kingdom. And then, fifthly, Jesus calls his first disciples and demonstrates the kingdom. If you read the rest of this chapter, you'll find that Jesus calls people and then goes out with them and demonstrates healing and miracles and all the things to do with the kingdom. He demonstrates the kingdom so that they would do the same. You know, great crowds came. They came from Galilee, it says. They came from the Decapolis, which is a series of ten 
Roman cities around that area. They came from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond Jordan, and presumably some of those places that are so much in the news at the moment. And he took the opportunity to teach on a foundational truth, the kingdom of God. It rules everywhere. Men and angels bow the knee to the King Jesus. The book of Revelation shows its extent, ranging beyond history to eternity. And yet, with all of that, it reigns in our hearts. And it's described by Paul in Romans 14:17 as the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord for that. This passage calls on us to recognise the kingdom of God as we pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, we are to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to live as kingdom people. So God bless you.